The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. And by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial when you sign up today at audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, January 7th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today is one of those shocking days where the speed of media in the 21st century instantaneously informs us of horrors visited upon a dozen people by adherents of a philosophy rooted in the 7th century. The attacks on Charlie Hebdo magazine in France are an abomination. A strike at journalists, jokesters, thinkers, speakers, stalwarts, and the brave idealists who wouldn't compromise their commitment to free expression. They were standard bearers, but they were also actual people with families and loved ones, and they died for an idea. A little later on in the spiel, I will contemplate the meaning of this violence and comment on what Western media should do now. Also, please note, we are all media. I will also talk to a poet, whom I love, because we could all use a little more poetry, especially poetry based on mermaids with Swiss army knife tales. But first, let's look ahead and ask, can attacks like today's ever be countered? Colin Clark is an associate political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He focuses on insurgency and counterinsurgency and asymmetric warfare. Hello, Colin Clark. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Think about these attacks on Paris and thinking forward. The question is, how do you ever stop it? I mean, how do you ever stop something? You can't post 12 guards at every magazine office. You can't try to intercept every communication beforehand. Is the key to try to simmer the temperatures of those who would be motivated to pull off an attack? Or is the key to, you know, physically have enough guards to counter the guns on their side? Well, I think there's several several variables. Um, one, to answer your question, no, you can never prevent uh, all terrorist attacks, particularly on soft, soft targets um, like we saw in Paris. But guarding every mall, landmark, transportation system, it's just not feasible. You know, we have a finite amount of resources. So I, I think the problem is, is several fold. One, it's, as you mentioned, countering the narrative, which in the West we are particularly not very good at. It seems like an easy enough narrative to combat this virulent strain of, of Islam, particularly Salafist Islam, but we're just not very good at it. Two, there's the, the physical, the kinetic counterterrorism piece to it, which is figuring out who's plotting and planning these attacks and either killing or capturing them, arresting those responsible uh, to the extent that that's possible. And then there's the intel piece, which is a, a pretty intricate piece of the puzzle. And, and that's really difficult, especially um, in an age of globalization where the threat emanates from all over the globe and nefarious actors are connected through the Internet like never before. Is there a historic precedent for successfully countering terrorism? I think of the IRA and how that was countered. It was, you know, they were given a poli- piece of the uh, political puzzle there. They were empowered, or if not them, their goals gained um, 
political traction. Don't see that happening with people like ISIS. I think of in the United States in the 70s, all these skyjackings and hijackings. And I think the temperature just lowered in the United States. Maybe the tactics weren't seen as successful. What do you look at? Well, you know, comparing ISIS or any of the al-Qaeda affiliates to the IRA is a bit of a misnomer. You're right, there will be no Belfast or Good Friday Agreement with these jihadist groups. One thing I think you need to look at is the objectives. Some of the groups that you mentioned, uh, some of these ethno-nationalist or sectarian groups, there was a definite goal, and it involved either power-sharing or you know, answering to certain grievances, whether they were economic, uh, civil rights, etc. So there was clear, realistic objectives that governments or those uh, those attempting to counter these movements could meet. Here, it's not on the table to say, yes, we accede to this caliphate. Let's start yeah. helping you plan how to achieve that. It's not going to happen. Two, I think the transnational nature of the terrorism threat is unlike anything we've ever seen before. So in the past, uh, whether it's the IRA in Northern Ireland you know, whether it's a group like ETA in Spain, the FARC in Colombia, these groups were primarily confined to to the host nation. Yeah, sure, the IRA attacked in uh, in England and, you know, attempted to attack uh, in Gibraltar, you know, in parts of Europe. But for the most part, this was a group that was based, headquartered, and conducted operations in a, in a very fixed territory. That's not the same with al-Qaeda. It's just a totally different animal. If you were to talk about that first part of the, your you know, three-legged stool, countering the narrative, what different things should we be saying? Yeah, I mean, I think pointing out some of the, the hypocrisy that goes, that goes along with what groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda are doing. I mean, these are, uh, in the case of ISIS, it's a group that slaughters Muslims, right? And so if you're the vanguard of Islam, how could you kill other Muslims? Well, you know. Uh, everyone that doesn't agree with ISIS is is an apostate. It's quite convenient for that group that, wow, everyone that doesn't agree with us, you know, falls under this certain label. The other piece to that, and this fits into the challenge of dealing with groups that are truly transnational, is cooperation. The United States, the French, the Brits, the Australians, Canadians, Western nations in general really need to focus on cooperating, sharing information, sharing intelligence to meet the threat that these groups pose. Colin Clark, associate political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Thanks so much. Thank you. One great resolution you can make every new year is to maximize each minute and each dollar for your small business. I know an easy way to do that, stamps.com. Think about the time you've wasted in and around post offices and struggled and all the energy you burnt up trying to figure out how to get to the post office. Stamps.com is just a better way. It takes what you already have. You have a printer, you have a computer, and with those tools, you could make official U.S. postage and the mailman will come to pick it up. So right now, use the promo code the gist to get a special offer, a no-risk trial, $110 bonus offer, and this includes a free digital scale that you could use to weigh things other than postage. They don't make you just weigh postage. You could use that scale, however, but please do use it on the postage, including the $55 worth of free postage that the bonus offer includes. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in the gist. That's stamps.com and enter the gist.
And now, Homemade Mermaid by Mattia Harvey. The Homemade Mermaid is top half pimply teenager, bottom half tuna. This does not make for a comely silhouette, and the fact that her bits are stitched together with black fishing wire only makes the combo more gruesome. The Homemade Mermaid floods Mermag's Ask Serena column with postcards that read, Oh, why not half salmon or half koi? Signed, Frankenmaid. Sure, she's got the syndrome, loves her weird-eyed maker who began his experiments with Barbies and goldfish in a basement years ago, but she does sometimes wish he'd picked her prettier sister and left her tanning on tinfoil in the yard. When he lugs the homemade mermaid to the ocean, she always comes swimming back, propelled only by her arms. She really hasn't reconciled with that tale. The next day, he can usually be cajoled into playing a game of all-girl. They tuck her tail in a tank behind her, and her human half sits pertly at a desk. Whether she's playing secretary or schoolgirl, the game always ends when the mixture of glue and glitter that he's still perfecting for her tail sparkles gets stuck in the tank ventilation system and the engine coughs to a stop. She sighs as he scoops out the glittery sludge. Tonight again, he'll serve her algae with anchovies, and she won't complain. The one time he brought her fries, delicious fries, she took them as if in a trance and dipped them, two at a time, into the ketchup. The shared memory sprang to both their faces, two severed legs, blood everywhere, his hand gripping the saw. Mattia Harvey's poems create words, raise issues, or raise ghosts, or sometimes raise eyebrows. Her 2007 work, Modern Life, won the Kingsley Tufts Award, which uh, comes with it a gift of $100,000. To put that in perspective, $100,000 was the most money anyone had ever made from poetry in the history of writing. Okay, I joke. (laughs) But it was a great collection, was Modern Life, and her new work is If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You? Mattia Harvey is here with me. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. So are the tabloids true? Um, I don't know if the tabloids are true, but a lot of the poems are um, taken from tabloid headlines from the Weekly World News. Oh, so you didn't invent the headlines. Some of them I did and some of them I didn't. So what was the one about Mich- the Michelin Man and that Shakespeare? That one I invented, Okay, yeah. what was that headline? That was um, Michelin Man Possessed by William Shakespeare. Michelin Man Possessed by William Shakespeare. And it's a sonnet. Mm-hmm. And uh, without giving away the uh, ending, well, give away the ending. <laughs> What's the couplet? Uh, make us a man or make us a machine, but do not leave us trapped here in between. In between? Oh, see, so that's interesting. A lot of your work concerns with sort of the in-betweenness of man and mythical creature. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And it's always, you will also, I think I read something where you said that the fractions are almost always half and half. Nice, simple fractions. Yeah. Although, I mean, there really should be more uh, variety. I guess when I think about a human being, I think there's like one one hundredth of this and one sixteenth of this. But I like working with the half and half because it's sort of a simple way to talk about boundaries. And you have also ha- a few different iterations of half mermaids in the in the new book. Mm-hmm. So what kind of mermaids have you come up with? There are poems that are about particular types of mermaids. So there's a straightforward mermaid, a deadbeat mermaid, but they're illustrated with silhouettes that have tools for tails. So I think of them as mer tools. Mm-hmm. The first one I made was a Swiss mermaid knife. So the top half is mermaid and the bottom half is a straight as a Swiss army knife. Yeah. Wait, did you say a Swiss mermaid knife? Yeah, I, think I have my secret mermaid. names for Swiss mermaid <laughs> for some of them. What are the different components of the, uh, of the knife, of the Swiss army knife? What would it, a mermaid need? Well, the thing is the mermaids don't really need most of these things. They're sort of more about what's being projected onto them or how they're being used. Yeah. So I think a mermaid could probably use 
maybe a wine corkscrew, mm-hmm. since I'm sure bottles of wine fall into the ocean. Right. Um, White wine, I hope, because it goes with seafood. Right. Yeah. Right. True. I'm trying to think what else. The little scissors would probably be good. Yeah. I don't know about toothpicks. I don't know their dental hygiene You know what would be the worst? The magnifying glass. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think Yeah, not that. so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The sw- <laughs> and then there's a, isn't there a gun mermaid? There is, yeah. What's the, so how does that work? Well, I don't think she actually probably works very well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was thinking about this with the power cord, because there's a power cord mermaid as well. And she would clearly get electrocuted if she were plugged in. So it's really a little bit more about humans projecting onto the mermaids. Why do you think mermaids are usually depicted, almost always depicted, in the actual half proportions that they are? The top half human and the bottom half fish? Why almost never the other way? I don't think they'd be as sexy to humans. That's right. It's all right? about us, right? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if in the mermaid world, their version of manmers are the fish head with the two little walkie feet. That would explain a lot because I went to a mermaid conference in 2011 and there were very few mermen. Yeah. What goes on at a mermaid conference? Oh, this I wasn't the mermaid parade in Coney Island. No, it was no. Mercon 2011 in Las Vegas. Uh-huh. Oh, great, great place for mermaids. It was perfect, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was about 70 mermaids hanging out in pools and mm-hmm. swimming a lot in their tails. That's cool. There was a beauty pageant, and that part was a little bit strange because they have to be lifted up by men and put on the stage, and then they flop around, and then they're carried off. That part was odd. I know when Bette Midler did a routine as mermaids, they all had wheelchairs. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's how they got around. But was the Mermaid Conference, was there a fetishizing thing going on? Mostly not. I, yeah. Well, I'd say there were a lot of older men photographing younger mermaids from above. So there's uh-huh. a lot of cleavage. <laughs> so that I did end up writing The Objectified Mermaid after going to Mercon. That was the last one I wrote. But most of it, it just seemed to be 70 people really enjoying swimming in pools together. Yeah. That's how it usually works, right? When the men get involved, that's when it all becomes a fetish thing. Yeah. 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 So what is the objectified mermaid? Uh, what are her issues? Or what did, you know, when you wrote about that in uh, the book, what you write? Um, she's sort of just annoyed with how she's being represented. She's having to do silly things for a photographer, like put fish bowls in front of her nipples and pretend that it tickles, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and and that fits in with the tabloidness of it because it's not necessarily the Inquirer tabloids. It's sort of the weekly world news. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of tabloid that you like. Um, bat Boy tabloid. I love a Bat Boy. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, or, you know, Farmer Falls in Love with Panda, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's always a good good starting point for a poem. Now, the last one, Modern Life. I love the experiment, which is, well, am I saying it right? Absicadarian? Abbasidarian? Abbasidarian. So it was, I guess the experiment or the task you gave to yourself was let's write kind of loosely defined, but a lot of the poems started with the letter H for a couple sentences, then went on to G, mm-hmm. then went on to. So it was like an alphabetical orderness, but yeah. it was pretty loose, right? Yeah. It was yeah. your own rules. You didn't have to follow anyone else's rules. Yeah, I started that trying to write just one poem called The Future of Terror. Yeah. And I really couldn't do it. And I was feeling this kind of overarching dread. And so I went to the dictionary and just looked up future and terror as a last resort. And then I looked at the chunk that was between the two of them. And I thought, well, maybe that's where this poem resides. And so I started picking one word per page and going through in the same spot on each page, making these word lists. And the poems really kind of wrote themselves then. Yeah, and it was one, what edition of the dictionary? What dictionary was it? It was a Red Webster's that I have at home. It's an old one. Yeah, so it's a good dictionary. Yeah. Thank God, right? Yeah. You couldn't write that online. No. No, that would be impossible. And so you give yourself signposts, and then you fill in the connective tissue. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. That's, in a way, an analogy for 
writing in any form? I mean, what is a sonnet except yeah. a bunch of rules and then you're filling in the actual words, the connective tissue? Yeah, it's like having a dance partner. It's like having a dance partner. And I do think a lot of creativity flourishes not when all, all bets are off, do anything. It flourishes when, all right, here are the three constrictions or restrictions. That makes someone more creative. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a way of um, maybe... In occupying your controlling side of your brain that's sort of trying to make sense and is proceeding logically. And so if that part is working on this play or this word word game that you're doing, then something stranger can come out. Right. What's more terrifying than a blank page? Well, what if I wrote just three words somewhere on the page and you mm-hmm. had to write to those words? You Look, what you came up with might not be great, but you'd be more likely to come up with something than yeah. just if I gave you the blank page. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you wrote those poems, you edited them, you probably threw a bunch of stuff out, Mm -hmm. but you never changed the words that you had to hit? Well, I had a really long list. It would take me an hour to make the whole list of all the words, and then I would just use the ones that excited me. So if I saw quarterback sneak, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to use quarterback sneak. (laughs) Did you know what that was before? Uh, No, not really. (laughs) So uh, yeah, give me a little cred with my football playing relatives. Um, Yeah, so words like that, words that excited me that I'd never used before were the ones I kind of lit upon. And how did you define quarterback sneak or did you I mean you read the definition yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, I did read the definition yeah. um, I had the, I think I had soldiers practicing quarterback sneak yeah and so that book was the future of terror and then it became the terror of the future mm-hmm. so an inversion at bookends of the book and it reminded me of like a rock album right like Neil mm-hmm. Young's Russ Never Sleeps or something that starts off with out of the blue and into the black and ends with out of the black into the blue mm-hmm. that's what's what it reminded nice. me of I is like that, that okay yeah okay. absolutely i mean I, I just i just love that and i also think it it's not unpolitical right but it's no. so unspecific so hmm were there things you wanted to say about either what the administration then was doing or how the world was going, things you wanted to say, or was it more expressive, an angst and a feeling? More of a feeling, I think. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I clearly don't tend to be an autobiographical writer, so for me it helps if I'm, I'm removed in some way. So I felt like that those future of terror poems were kind of like talking about the moon and having what you say about the moon reflect back on the earth or a satellite. Yeah. Um, And that way I could say all these really angry things that I couldn't say in the first person somehow. Well, you say you're not autobiographical, but we should tell our listeners you're sitting here with a gun as half your body. So (laughs) that's true. Yeah. We should disclose (laughs) that. It's hard to conceal that. I should have worn a skirt. Mattia Harvey's new collection is called If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You? Mattia, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. And the gist is sponsored by Audible. Audible has over 150,000 titles in virtually every genre. You'll find what you're looking for. You get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial today by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash the gist, audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. Good book that uh, I just made download is Dante's Inferno. All right, that's a nice one. Been meaning to read that. Ah, but it's who reads it. That's important. Former poet laureate Robert Pinsky. They have a bunch of poets, and uh, Pinsky and Seamus Haney are among those who read Dante's Inferno. So you can get that free trial from Audible. Other things to tell you about Audible, they have a free app for iPhones and your iPad and your Android and your Windows. And they have this whisper sync thing. You can switch back and forth while reading a book on the Kindle or listening to it in audio. So you can mix modes but never lose your place. And the Audible app is very cool because it has things like sleep mode and narration speed control. People like that. 30-second rewind, chapter navigation, all good stuff, all 
for the listening pleasure of readers, for the reading pleasure of listeners. That's audiblepodcast.com slash the gist. And now the spiel, Je suis Charlie Hebdo. When the terrorists attacked on September 11th, 2001, we heard, they hate us for our freedoms. We found out that was reductive. Their grievances were many, including, yes, broadly speaking, the openness of Western culture, but also, as clearly delineated in the complaints of Osama bin Laden and his brethren, there were political demands and a yearning to return to the caliphate. When ISIS beheads captives, it's barbaric, it's evil, but the explanation that it's a clash of societies is not quite right either. They're engaged in a war. They want land and territory as much or more than they want mind share. But this murder of 10 satirists in France is a little different. It wasn't a military target. It wasn't a random civilian target. It was daring and irreverent journalists, cartoonists, and jokesters whose crime was what they thought and how they expressed it. They really were killed for an idea and killed for expressing the idea. They were hated for their freedom and only their freedom. Not just press freedom, but yes, press freedom, but also freedom of thought. There was no misguided battlefield component to the attack. It was simple retribution for saying things, writing things, and drawing things that the assailants thought should not be said, drawn, or written. Now in the West, we're grappling with the ripple of the question of that which should not be said. What do we do to disseminate the images that got these 10 Frenchmen killed? Because in 2015, everyone is their own publisher. It's a decision that literally anyone with a social media account can make. Should I tweet or post the offending pictures of the Prophet Muhammad that Charlie Hebdo printed? For instance, there's the one of the cartoon Muhammad saying in French, a hundred lashes if you don't die of laughter. The conceit was that that issue was guest edited by Muhammad. After the offices of Charlie Hebdo were bombed in 2011, the editor held up this very cover while standing next to the rubble. Today, that image was pixelated in the pages of the New York Daily News, and the UK Telegraph cropped out a similar shot where the now-slain editor was holding up a different depiction of Mohammed in the pages of his magazine. Look, if you're a news organization that doesn't want to print a photo depicting Mohammed, then don't print a photo depicting Mohammed. But don't use that original photo where the very point was that the editor was bravely and brazenly holding up this picture of Muhammad and then crop out the potentially offending image, thereby cropping out the soul of his argument. But what of the publications that won't print offensive cartoons? As unsatisfying as this is, it's a little more complicated than a simple calculation of bravery or cowardice. An Associated Press spokesman says, quote, None of the images distributed by AP showed cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. It's been our policy for years that we refrain from moving deliberately provocative images. The truth is that the AP has a calculus that necessarily goes beyond cowardly or courageous. The AP has dozens of employees and hundreds of stringers in the field in areas where being associated with printing these cartoons could put those people at risk. It's not fair, it's not right, it's not logical, but the kind of twisted mind that would be so motivated as to mount such an attack is not the sort of mind that would be persuaded by arguments about press freedom or news judgments or the difference between the decisions of the foreign desk and the photo desk. 
As far as I could see, every big news organization with people in the field has made the decision to skirt the most pointed cartoons. So far, the outlets that are showing Charlie Hebdo Muhammad cartoons like Vox, Gawker, Talking Points Memo, Front Page, The Washington Examiner, and Slate are outlets without employees in the field in war zones. The larger organizations have to protect their people, even if that means shying away from what I presume is their journalistic instinct, especially with the victims being other journalists. I'm not saying big U.S. news organizations are making the right choice, but it is a hard choice and one that murderous extremists have thrust upon journalists. Me? I would print them. But I'm more responsible to the purity of my ideas than the lives of my colleagues. Also, as a consumer, I would like to see full English translations of entire Charlie Hebdo issues, especially the one that was guest edited by Muhammad. That seems like it could have worth based on content, beyond merely being covered by the dictum that describes Voltaire's philosophy, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Defend to the death, which is what the editors of Charlie Hebdo did today. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi analyzes answers always awash in apprehension. Joel Myers' bear-like bonds barely break open through the biting and besieging of boundaries. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, calmly crafts a contemplative codicil to the competition. You can go to iTunes and subscribe. You can go to slate.com slash just email to sign up for our email. We are utilizing the app, yo. So download that app, sign up for podcast, and you'll get a link as soon as we're ready to go. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. The gist gestures via gerrymandered gerunds, gymnastic gems that germinate into giant genodes. Then say, Geronimo. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this week on the Slate Culture Gab Fest, we talk about the astonishing movie by the English filmmaker Mike Lee about the painter J.M.W. Turner. It's called Mr. Turner. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.